0: Welcome back to another episode of Stories with Brad. I'm Brad. This is part one of a three part series taking place in Baja, California, Mexico. It's been a real joy to put this series together and uh, part one is kind of long. So I'm going to keep this really short. Going back through all the photos, all the videos, making timelines, and really organizing this story has been highly beneficial. So with that, I really hope you enjoy part one, and I should have part two out in about a week or two. Enjoy. (laughs) Enjoy. Fear is a magnetic bedfellow. Once fearful, only ideas in alignment with said fear remain rational. All others fall away as counterproductive and dangerous. Mexico, however, didn't seem to scare me, which was the opposite of the response I received when telling friends of my plans. Back then, my daily life is what scared me, or my perceived loss of so much I had worked for. In short, I felt like I was losing my mind. The inability to sustain focus is what troubled me the most. Any task which I had the slightest familiarity would put me in a fractured state of mind, unable to remain present within the task I was performing. I was in a perpetual state of autopilot, and it sure felt unnatural, something like a loss of control. This loss of control would manifest in short, intense fits of anger or frustration. I would hold it all inside. I remember searching the YouTubes for how to deal with panic attacks and dealing with depression. I could feel things getting worse, while at the same time not knowing which way would lead me out rather than falling ever deeper into the abyss. I could see the reflection of myself on the faces of my friends, and in my mind I had become that wet blanket no one wanted to be around. I felt like I needed a dramatic change or another perspective of myself. It wasn't that I wanted to feel good about myself, I just wanted to feel something, because the loss of feeling is truly frightening. Prior to Baja, I had been on several multi-week motorcycle trips. Each presented me with a slightly different perspective upon my return home. Amongst my friends, I was known to go on these long and arduous cross-country journeys, coming home with photos and stories of people and places I would share upon my return. My rides often took place in the wrong season for preferred travel. This allowed me to have places all to myself. I found personal benefit from the struggle. Riding across Arizona in the snow on a CBR-600 crotch rocket is not smart, by the way. Spending one day moto camping in Utah, and the next visiting a friend in Denver, Colorado. The following day, riding from Denver to Cleveland straight through the night to see family. Doing my best to squeeze every moment out of my limited time. Arriving back home disgustingly exhausted, only to go back to work the next morning. I was young, and by my own account, bulletproof. Time and perspective allow me to swap bulletproof for extremely lucky. Going to Baja in a strange way would be a step into the unknown. A new and different world The land and culture were currently unknown to me personally, other than what I'd been privy to in the usual info, the news. I feared my life back home more than I feared any news story about cartels. When I looked at Mexico on the map, it seemed like my salvation of unfamiliar. At the time, I didn't see that I was running away from my fears at home. Fear knows no earthly restriction, and no matter the distance or time, they would wait patiently for my return. With Christmas 2012 looming large in the rear view, I began the process of packing my motorcycle for unknown lands. In those days, it was much more of a chore. Baja would be my very first overland trip on my R1200GS. Only a few months before, I had bought it, sight unseen from a BMW dealer in California. With less than 5,000 miles on the odometer, the bike was practically brand new. It came fully outfitted with every gadget and trick part necessary for what I currently perceived a quote-unquote adventure bike to be. I took the day off from work for the delivery. The first time I laid eyes on the bike, I was in disbelief. I had never seen a motorcycle so beautiful. The GS is a true work of art. No detail overlooked. Every part is somehow multi-purpose. After we found its new home in the garage, I just stared at it. Sitting on a five-gallon bucket turned upside down, I pored over every bolt, button, and fairing until my legs fell asleep. I was planning for something I had not yet thought was possible. Surprisingly, I felt focused for the first time in months. Envisioning some far-off, imaginary, remote destination, this bike would be my only companion. From that bucket I realized I would need to care for this machine if it is to take care of me. This must be the way. I wanted to travel to a better version of myself, and this seemed like the vehicle to take me there. Ultimately, I decided on a motorcycle trip to Baja, California over the new year It took the better part of a month planning for the seven sand-filled riding days over remote roads in the Baha. Time is always in short supply, and those days were no different. I would save every minute of my vacation time for an annual motorcycle adventure. This trip was time-limited and focused to make every moment count. During my planning, Google was unable to provide any usable links to GPS, other than main roads. But I did find physical maps, aptly named adventure maps. They are a lightweight, somewhat waterproof vinyl, making them perfect for folding and refolding. I could see them withstanding the myriad of harsh elements encountered on the road. As I finalized my planning, I was beginning to understand this ride. Like many of my previous rides, this one would be far more of a marathon than a sprint. I was planning to ride 20 hours straight from my home in Seattle to San Diego. The following day, I would enter Mexico and begin my descent into the sands of Baja. I would spend the next five days riding as deep as time would allow. I did not know how far I would get while following the Baja 1000 route on and off. The final two days of my ride, I would head back north to Seattle. Best I could track, I would have around 4,000 miles once the journey came to a close. It had all the ingredients of a solid ride. Leaving at 6 p.m. meant I would arrive in San Diego around 6 p.m. the following day. I'm always nervous before departing on a big trip. My mind's always racing with, what am I forgetting? What have I overlooked? What situations have I not considered? Am I even up to this challenge? Space on a motorcycle is at a premium. Nothing unnecessary should be on board. Especially when you are planning to ride 500 miles of every type of sand Baja has to throw at you. Considering not only what I'm bringing, but what I'm leaving behind. After securing my luggage, I backed the bike out of the garage and took my last walk around. Kicking the tires, pulling on the straps, extra gas is secure. The only thing left is to do the thing. I swung my leg over the bike, lowered my garage door, and face shield. I set off on a 4,000-mile journey hoping to discover a new me. There was one thing I did not forget. Maybe it had been the impetus of this whole ride. That was a three-quarter-inch Cornwell socket tucked in the breast pocket of my motorcycle jacket next to a Ziploc bag with my passport. Held within that socket is a small amount of ashes from my late brother, J.B. Weld, sealing both ends. A little more than four years before, he had died in a single-car accident he fell asleep on the road and hit a tree. That ended our series of motorcycle journeys just as they had begun. Now he comes along with me in a different form, but with me nonetheless. Overnight cold weather riding is a special type of torture, albeit necessary at times. The first half of the 20-hour ride was particularly brutal. Temperatures had hovered around the mid-30s, and in these temperatures, I'd need to be constantly moving on the bike for increased blood flow. When it comes to cold exposure, it's only a matter of time until the convulsing begins. First, the extremities chill. After that, I began to lose the feeling of warmth from my heated vest. Once my core temperature Began to dip, the extremities get colder at a surprising rate. After cold, the numbness begins to set in. Then the pain. My hands were stinging numb with the heated grips on high and double gloves. Shifting gears now required me to move my whole leg up or down as my ankles were now numb along with my feet. Numb feet make gas stops slow and methodical, walking like a stiff and sleepy Yeti. Once the bike was fueled, I would fill my small thermos with the hottest coffee I could find. Paying the attendant while trying not to convulse is key. Visually, I can't imagine there's much difference between someone who's experiencing the beginning stages of hypothermia to that of someone who is dope sick. I needed every degree of heat, and I didn't want to get kicked out of the precious warmth the indoors provided. I would stand inside the gas station, thankful for the heat, and drink as much boiling coffee as I could while the attendant looked on. In the winter, the faces of those behind the counter at the gas station were always ones of disbelief and confusion, with maybe a touch of fear. The road delivers all types of people, even the crazy ones. My crazy was mostly polite as not to cause a scene. Once I reached Redding, California, the torture stopped. Riding through the night to San Diego, both north and south, I was able to add two days in the Baja. This was the method to my madness. And I arrived in San Diego, tired and hungry, but I did arrive. Some family you are born into, and some family is gathered along the way. Eddie and I had been brothers from another mother for about 13 years at this point. We served on the same submarine and lived together as roommates. We had been through a myriad of chaotic adventures, And through that, time allowed us to get to know each other in ways others could not. In so many ways, I looked up to him. After all, he taught me how to make the best pot of beans, along with some other stuff. The first time I met his family, I arrived in Texas in a similar fashion. Riding through the snow across the Southwest without even a cell phone, I arrived at a Walmart our prearranged location, slightly behind schedule and very cold. I waited for him, standing in the air curtain of the Walmart entrance. The doors were caught in a perpetual cycle of automatically opening and closing with every tiny movement I made. The Walmart greeter, a small woman, came up to me and asked if I was okay, if I needed any help. I just smiled and told her I was just really cold. I guess April may not be the best time of year to ride a motorcycle cross country. Um, Lesson not learned. When he rolled up in his car, he saw me standing there in the entrance, the doors opening and closing. And he just looked at me and he laughed, called me a dumbass in his typical loving fashion. And I followed him to meet his family. Let me be very clear. Not now, nor ever, have I claimed to be what some may call a smart person. It was warm in San Diego and my chills were almost gone. Eddie made a spot for my bike in the garage next to his CBR 900. Andrea came out, gave me a big hug, and immediately thrust a warm drink into my hands. They know me. This was its own sense of warmth. The kids were shy as it had been some time since our last encounter. Seeing them grow is really something special. I sat on the couch as they warmed up to me one by one. Even blinded by the 20 plus hours of riding, I was fairly lucid. Happy to be on this journey and happy to be back in such great company. Happy to be sharing a table with friends I consider family. And developing before my eyes was a very bright, start to this adventure. I told them of my loose plans to explore the sandy trails of Baja on this new-to-me motorcycle, not knowing exactly where I'd be able to go as info on Baja was pretty scarce at the time. They were, in fact, the first souls I told about the why of this endeavor. I reminded Eddie of past stories he told me about spending summers with his cousins in Mexico how we found great value in the simple pleasures of Mexican life. Chasing chickens, pressing tortillas, limon and chile on everything. We always found ourselves navigating our conversations towards food. There was something else, though. A quiet reluctance in his voice gave me pause during my open mouthed daydream of this Baja trip. I found it curious that they were actually worried about me. Worried about my lack of detailed planning. Worried about where I would stay. What if something goes wrong? What if? What if? What if? I could understand their concern while not sharing it. And at some point after dinner, Eddie pulled me aside and asked if he could join, at least overnight. I happily agreed. But he didn't have to sell me. He had to sell Andrea. Then... We had dessert beers. Under the morning sun, we prepared the bikes for the day's ride. Bags packed, straps tightened, tires kicked. We were ready. I could sense a very slight hesitation from Andrea, totally understandable. But beyond that, I felt her comfort and are being together once again, this time on the road, in search of unknown lands. Eddie was a little unsure his bike would be okay off-road, obviously, CBR 900, so I promised him I would stick to main roads, or at least paved ones. We were off. Entering Baja overland is unlike entering any other country I've experienced. We entered through the small town of Takate to avoid the crowds and confusion of Tijuana. We passed a sign telling us we were about to leave the USA. It started to sink in. We were about to be in taco country. Taste buds be warned. Our loaded bikes passing armed military slowly as they eyed us with curiosity. More signs in English and Spanish now. More barricades. More armed military. Then a peculiar stoplight suddenly it turned green and we were waved in bienvenido a mexico later i would find that those stoplights are indicating who gets searched if the light turns red you get searched other than that you're in next stop ensenada ruta del vino is a spectacular route that connects Tacate to Ensenada. This wandering road weaves its way through the valleys of wine country and was not what I had envisioned. I felt like I was riding in Utah along the curves of the Colorado River. Here we were seeing quiet, well accommodated ranches and hotels offering winery excursions and very little traffic. This was splendid riding. I stopped at an overlook. We exclaimed to each other the beauties of this road and how it was so much more than we had ever envisioned. Eddie was much more confident in his bike that it would be okay for this endeavor. We agreed our next stop would be lunch as we were both starting to feel the magnetic pull of the taco on our stomachs. We stopped at an open-air taco bar, something bigger than a cart but less than a restaurant Under a covered area, there was a long bar with stools, and the menu was plastered on the wall. I understood nothing, but there was a positive people sign. Eddie ordered for both of us. You really don't know any Spanish, do you? He said. Nope. I took four years of French in high school, I replied. Why French? He asked, in confusion. I don't know Girls took French? I replied, laughing because that was the truth. We wandered through Ensenada, allowing our curiosity to lead the way. We checked out the marina and all the small vendors. We walked into a casino without even knowing it was a casino. We ate many snacks and we walked around some more. Then it hit us we should buy some actual tequila. After all, it was a few days prior to New Year's. Now we had a new mission. Try and find something authentic within a sea of items claiming to be something they were not. We wandered from shop to shop. Eddie would talk to the clerk, and I never knew what he was saying. Probably something like, "'How much would you pay me for this gringo? "'I will exchange him for a bottle of your finest tequila.'" we finally settled on a bottle of 30-year-age tequila reposado. This would make for a great night and likely a terrible morning, but you only live once. Eddie stuffed our newly found friend in his bag and we set off down the coast to our destination for the night. Passing a horse on a rope, we rode cautiously as the road was eroding, slowly falling hundreds of feet into the sea below. Coyote cows stood in the distance, a large building sitting atop a bluff, looking out over the Pacific Ocean. It stands apart from the other smaller structures which surround it. This place is well known to those in the Ba 1000 community. We parked our bikes and walked in. The door opens to a large room with community dining tables, a kitchen, and a wood stove. We got the tour from Cal himself, an expat gringo who had lived in Mexico for decades. He told us we could choose any room we wanted or we could have the whole bottom floor. He didn't plan on getting too many more arrivals. Downstairs, there was a partial kitchen, sink, countertops, and cupboards, a small dining table with chairs, small bathroom and shower. We told him about the tequila and he suggested we take the bottom floor. He instructed us where to park and let us know that he would be closing the gate at 10 p.m., so we should be back from dinner by then. Dinner? What about dinner? I asked him for a local recommendation. He pulled out a large three ring binder filled with pages, of four by six printed photos with names and phone numbers. He flipped open to a particular page and pointed at his favorite, suggesting that he call to make a reservation for us. We gladly accepted and unpacked our bikes. Only a few streets from Coyote Cows, we arrived at our dinner location. Unsure if this was actually the location, we cautiously peeked around the corner. It wasn't a restaurant, nor was it a cart. It was someone's small home. After being invited in, we timidly entered, holding our bottle of tequila. There were two small tables in the living room. A petite, older woman with a warm smile came out of the kitchen to greet us, She generously motioned for us to sit down. The table had white, knit doilies, where the plates would be, and several sauces with images of peppers on the label. Also on the table were cut limes, salt and pepper, and sugar. I felt like a giant as I sat down into this small chair. Sitting at the small table was somewhat awkward, something I was not used to. Every time I moved, I was knocking something over like a clumsy fool, and we hadn't even started drinking yet. The woman returned with chips and salsa. She went on to tell us the items she was offering for the day. I just stared blankly at Eddie as he nodded along and conversed with her. He told me he was having chile relleno, and I told him, just order me the same. She returned with a bottle of Coke and two glasses filled with ice. For our beverages. This must be what heaven is like. Even a world away from what I know, I find myself sitting at a grandmother's table, another subtle reminder that people are often the solution to any of my problems, or desires for that matter, while on the road. We heard the peppers hit the hot oil of the cast iron pan with a hiss. Wasn't more than a minute before the whole place smelled like home cooking. We poured our tequila over ice and gave it a try. I didn't drink tequila, but I was excited to try this one with Eddie. It was smoky and had a peculiar aftertaste. Not bad. Then the food arrived, and not many more words were spoken, as we ate like it was our last meal. Back at Coyote Cows, we selected our sleeping locations from the bunk beds, This was considered a mixed dorm. The room had a military feel to it. Maybe it was the way the bunk beds were lined up, or maybe it was the green metal lockers that similarly looked like they had been purchased from a military surplus store. On the counter, there were odds and ends left behind by visitors from the past. Salt and pepper, paper plates, soap, lime salt, a variety of hot sauces, and a small container of cooking oil. I found myself wondering what stories this place would tell. I grabbed two cups and put them on the table next to our tequila. You want popcorn? I asked Eddie. Heck yeah, do it up, he replied in astonishment. Why do you have popcorn? He asked, looking at my meager belongings brought for this trip. I replied, Popcorn is the perfect camping food, it's a great snack or it can be dinner in a pinch. I walked out the door carrying a small pot with a lid and handle, a small stove and a gas container. I assembled our popcorn cooker on the sidewalk around the corner from the door, came back in to grab the popcorn and the cooking oil from the counter. We were in business. Once the popcorn finished, it felt like indoor camping. That night, we enjoyed popcorn, tequila, and stories from our past while simultaneously writing new chapters. How lucky was I to share this unique experience with one of my closest friends? The next morning was an early one. The room was cold as we noticed, in fact, we were the only heat source. Waking up to a vista of the ocean never gets old. Quiet sounds now seemed loud. Maybe it was the tequila, the bunk, or both, but we were both ready to dive into a cup of coffee. Instant coffee is never an inviting experience until desperation strikes. With shaky hands, I lit my small camp stove to boil water for the coffee. The remaining popcorn was still wrapped in its foil on the counter, looking now a little more like breakfast. Eddie gathered his things, he was heading back to San Diego, and I would be heading onwards towards the eastern coast of the peninsula. Today was New Year's Eve. Outside, next to the bikes now, we said our goodbyes. I snapped the last picture of him as he rode off, heading back home. I shifted my attention to my quote unquote adventure map. MX1 runs the length of Baja. Once this road was paved, the remote areas of Baja became much less remote. MX-1 wanders from the Pacific side to the Eastern Cortez side, back and forth, and connects many other unpaved roads. This whole area is developing quickly, and you can hear or even read mixed reviews about the area changing from what it once was but most of the locals are inviting the change. The paved road brought development and with it a much higher standard of living. You can make good time on these paved roads due to the infrequent traffic and gaps between towns. The visibility is good and the scenery does not disappoint. One of the largest gaps between towns and fuel is nearly 250 miles, which is about 30 miles beyond the range of my R1200GS motorcycle. This is why I hauled my cumbersome Rotopax fuel container. The extra weight makes it more difficult off-road managing the bike, but in the end, worth the extra trouble. One thing holds true on MX-1, you are either going south or north. What goes down Baja must come back up. Standing in the parking lot of Coyote Cows, staring blankly at my map, I needed an exit. Standing in the parking lot of Coyote Cows, staring blankly at the map, I needed to extract a destination for the day. The morning sun was warm, but the air was cold. I pushed my bike into a growing sliver of sun as I stood in the parking lot, finishing my coffee and pondering destinations on the map. Hearing it first, I looked over to watch a truck slowly pull in the parking lot with a bike strapped down in the back. The bike was a Honda 650 with a large gas tank, crash bars, and two large circular headlights. Once parked, a man hopped out of the truck, looked at my bike, and walked towards me, smiling. Bending down to look at the suspension on my bike, he questioned, You heading north or south? East, well, south, I guessed. Confused at first, I quickly realized he was asking if I was entering or leaving Baja. He stood up and looked at my map and asked, First time in Baja. Holding my thermos lid and coffee, I responded, Yeah, I only have a few days, but I'd like to see as much as I can. He took a pen out of his jacket and held it over my map and asked, Do you mind? I nodded with approval. Go for it. That's why I have a map. It's also a record of the ride. He began marking X's on remote roads indicated on the map. These are super rough. They have massive rocks and steep cliffs. Perfect if you want to dance with the devil, he went on, but now circling roads around the mountains. These are sandy, but you should be okay. He stopped as his pen approached my handwritten note of Coco's corner. He commented, Coco is a great guy. You will enjoy meeting him. He's a busy guy, so try to catch him before noon. Good to know, I replied. So you met Coco? I asked. He replied, Oh yeah, many times. He's a hoot. And without missing a beat, he went back to circling. These roads have deep sand, but if you stay on the throttle, you might be able to plane through them. Never seen a big bike like this on these roads, but it's worth a try. Take extra water and don't ride at night. Best of luck welcome to Baja. And just like that, he walked away and into Coyote Cals as if it was a familiar thing. I gulped the last bit of my coffee down, tossed the thermos in my tank bag, folded up my map for the day's ride, and slid it into the map holder. Swinging a leg over the bike, I hit the start button. Time to head towards San Felipe. My first encounters with the Baja desert were spectacular. The alien landscapes look so fierce and unforgiving. Everything seems as if it wants to kill you. There are tiny cacti, so small you can't see them until you look very close. There are tall cacti, I believe they're called cardone, standing over 20 feet. The aged and dead fallen arms lay at their bases. Some cacti, have long, thin, eerie-looking arms that extend up from the ground in a V-pattern as if they're from the pages of a Dr. Seuss book. The long, prong-filled arms sway gently in the breeze, all the while looking like they could wrap themselves around those unsuspecting few who get too close and dare to look away. Certainly a place where life even now, struggles to survive. The day's miles had brought many new sights and sounds. I was able to buy food in San Felipe, which was great. I was using my limited Spanish the best I could with lo siento, or I'm sorry, used most frequently, as I stumbled through a sentence I had constructed only minutes before. Most people I talked with just... Switch to English without missing a beat. They had a much better handle on words surrounding their business than I did. I bought fresh tortillas, panaya cheese, and hot sauce, all from the side of the road, making my tank bag now my pantry. All the quick necessities live in the tank bag. Coffee, water, pens, toiletries in a cinched pouch. And then there's some tools for fixing a flat tire as well. The clear map holder is Velcroed to the top of the tank bag. And while riding, I can just easily look down, verifying my direction against the posted sides. So far, so good for my first solo day on the road in Mexico. Riding now next to the Sea of Cortez, I was in awe of the beauty of Mexico. For the past few hours, I had been on a newly paved road, its surface in pristine condition. The raw beauty of the landscape had my divided attention between it and the road. The coastal cliffs and water were stunning and without much, if any, indication of human activity. Even as the colors of the sky began to change with the setting sun, I continued deeper into the south, A thick band of orange began to grow from the water's edge. Becoming larger and larger, the tone changed to a pink and consumed all that was once blue. Not one cloud to be seen. Awestruck by this performance, I had not realized the time, as it would be dark soon and I would need to find a place to camp. As I kept an eye out for a suitable spot, the light continued to fade, little by little, and then all at once it was gone, fully consumed by the darkness. So dark, in fact, my headlight seemed to be swallowed. Even my brights didn't seem to make much of a difference. I suddenly realized how remote I was. There was zero light pollution. Zero people. Then the newly paved road ended. I was now doing what everyone had warned me against. Riding at night, under the bright stars, on a rough gravel road. The closest town some distance into the night. With my headlights limited penetration into the dark, I couldn't distinguish the big rocks from the small ones. The rocks were brightly reflecting limestone and casting shadows, making ruts, and deep sections nearly impossible to see. I really needed to find a place to camp, but I hesitated, camping anywhere near the main road, as I didn't want any of the reflective bits from my tent to be seen from the road. I stopped my bike and looked at my map. 50 miles to the nearest town. I quickly calculated two and a half hours at the current rate of speed. I continued cautiously into the dark. My eyes adjusted slowly, and I became more familiar with the difficulties of the road. The bike was taking a real beating, as I often heard rocks bouncing off my aluminum skid plate with the signature clang-clong. Passing a partially constructed bridge was the first sign of human activity I've seen in over an hour. All the construction site was empty at this hour, but people did come here. I was in luck as the dry riverbed was well-traveled and mostly clear of larger rocks, which could cause real damage to my bike and likely result in the both of us laying on our sides. Coming up from the riverbed, Back onto the plane of the road, I was beginning to see the faint glow of lights on the horizon. Struggling to see the civilization in the darkness, I suddenly noticed a man stepping out from the darkness in full camo. With one hand, he was holding his arm out, and with the other, he was holding an M16. I skidded the bike to a stop only 20 feet from him, unsure. What this new developing situation would bring. Wearing a military helmet, I could now see he was Mexican Army. He looked almost as surprised to see me as I was to see him. He walked up to me holding the gun at the low ready and said something I didn't understand. It was at that point I had all the thoughts. All the worries came rushing in like a tsunami Am I being robbed? Is this guy really with the military? Do the military rob people? What the heck are these guys doing out here? Does he want money? How did I get myself into this? Is this a night trap I've heard of? Then he said something I finally understood. Passport. Oh, it's a checkpoint. I understand. I had read that the military runs many checkpoints up and down Baja. I reached into my jacket, pulled out my passport, handing it to him. He quickly looked at it and asked where I was going. I didn't have a real destination, but I asked about camping. He shook his head and said, Camping on these roads is not safe at night, and I should find a different place to stay, closer to town, down the road. Pointing at the lights in the distance, he pointed to my left and said, Alfonsinos. He pointed to the right and said a name I did not understand. He handed my passport back to me and motioned for me to continue into the darkness towards Gonzaga Bay. Much calmer now, I pulled up to the sandy and full parking area of Alfonsino's after 10 p.m. Looking at all the cars surrounding me, doubt filled my mind that they would have any space available on this New Year's Eve. I parked the bike in the only out-of-way spot which was quite sandy and deep. I immediately looked for some trash to put under the kickstand. Spotting a crushed, discarded Takate can, I used my boot and kicked it under the kickstand so the bike didn't sink into the sand and fall over while I was away. I now heard laughing and raised voices coming from a busy dining area just inside the hotel. I stepped into the large covered breezeway separating the building in two. An opening to the beach at the other end. To my right, the kitchen and large dining room were filled with a flurry of movements. To my left, there was a single woman at a desk working on paperwork. All the chairs in the room were upside down on their tables. The only light which remained was a small lamp she was working closely under. In front of me, I could smell the water from the breeze blowing in from the bay sand collecting on the off-white-colored tiles from foot traffic coming in from the beach. This place was fancy. Much fancier than I was used to. I felt out of place, as per normal, but I was low on options. A quick glance into the dining room would reveal a large group of gringos enjoying themselves on this New Year's Eve. My heart sank as I looked over all the decorations there's no way they're going to have room for me. Looking around, I slowly noticed this place was packed. All of a sudden, a large man wearing a chef's apron walked up to me, as if to stop me from walking in any further. He looked me up and down. I was still wearing my motorcycle jacket and holding my helmet. He tilted his head slightly as he glanced over my shoulder and noticed my motorcycle just parked out of way, near the building's entry, in the crowded lot. He asked with a thick accent, is that your motorcycle? Yes. I didn't expect to be on the road this late, but it was under construction and I was delayed. I said, trying to not look too threatening or crazy. At least I was warm. Very nice motorcycle. Yes, traveling at night is not safe. My name is Alfonsino. "'How may I help you?' he asked. "'I asked trying to hold a smile and hide my hesitation in the statement, "'feeling like the request was in fact a silly one. "'I know it's late, but I'm looking for a place to stay. "'Do you have any rooms available?' "'He looked side-eyed at me. "'Do you have a reservation?' he asked, without a bit of surprise. "'I do not.' I replied, wincing a little bit, but shaking my head as the words departed my mouth. He responded, wait here, let me check. As quickly as he arrived, he was off to talk with the woman behind what looked like the reception desk. I could see her pull a key off the wall and hand it to him. He returned and handed me the key and pointed with an open hand to the end of the breezeway. You can see the room if you like. The cost is $50. If you decide to stay, you are invited to be our guest at the Posada. It's New Year's Eve. We will have lobster dinner very shortly. As soon as he was there, he was gone, racing back to the kitchen, leaving me open-mouthed, holding the key. No way, I said under my breath. I couldn't believe my luck. Walking up the stairs to my room, still shaking my head, thinking, how did I forest Gump my way into this? Opening the door to the room, I could tell by the detail in the tile work. This was way nicer than I was used to, even back in the USA. Then I checked. The hot water worked. I was in awe. I walked down and found the girl who handed Alfonsino the key and offered to pay. She wrote me a receipt as I unloaded my bike. On my first day riding in Baja Solo, I didn't die. In fact, to my utter amazement, this was turning out to be one of the best motorcycle rides I had ever had the pleasure to endure. I couldn't plan this, even if I would have tried. I must be getting help from my guardian angel. I took my things to my room, looked in the mirror to see my hair matted in full helmet hairstyle, and my face completely covered in dirt. Note to self, wipe off your face before entering into negotiations. I dropped my things and enjoyed a hot shower. After a full day on the road, nothing makes me feel human again like a hot shower can. All cleaned up and with fresh clothes, I sat motionless on the edge of the bed, my head still spinning from the day, and how amazing it was. Flashing over the sights and sounds from the road, I slowly laid back onto the bed. I stretched my arms over my head and laid them on the pillows. Staring at the ceiling, I was exhausted. I thought deeply about skipping the Posada and just crashing out for the night. No one would notice. After all, I had put in a full day of riding, leaving me quite destroyed and needing the rest. But then I decided no. I thought to myself, I'm just looking for a reason to hide in my room. I didn't come all this way to hide in a hotel room and listen to others having a good time. I got into my food in my tank bag and ate like a starved gorilla really quick so others wouldn't have to see me in such a state. A few minutes later, I was feeling so much better and it was time to go downstairs. Wearing my sandals now, I entered the dining room, and just about the same time, they were serving the food. An older woman noticed me walk in and rushed over with a golden, shimmering scarf. She put it around my neck. Welcome, welcome, she exclaimed while clapping her hands. Now you're festive like us. Please come sit. Tell us where you came from. Everyone in the dining room was so joyful and engaging. The group looked quite a bit older, but so full of life, it left me noticeably confused. Are these people just drunk? More came up to me to shake my hand and introduce themselves as more dinner plates came out of the kitchen and into the dining room. Names were going in one ear and exiting the other just as fast as they were spoken. I was on the very edge of being too tired to even function what's going on here? I felt like I was a special guest or something. Then I started to realize these people weren't guests of the hotel. They were locals to the area. Expat gringos who all had a similar story of finding themselves living in Baja after what they each describe as falling in love with Mexico. Finally, settling in a bit more, I found a seat at one of the plastic tables sitting next to a couple. The man who sat beside me began to talk. You need a drink. It's New Year's Eve. He raised his hand, and after a nod from the bartender, a corona appeared in front of me not 10 seconds later. He then went on about all manners of events, explaining at length about his solar panel setup in his home and how it was only a short walk from the hotel how he planned on installing more wind generators so he can make all of his own power. My mind was spinning with stimulation, and now I was adding alcohol. I felt slow and stupid as I tr- I struggled to ask questions to show interest. He must have noticed I was tired because he asked me how I ended up there that night in Gonzaga Bay. I told him about the road and riding down the partially completed bridge, and the military checkpoint, how they pointed at this place, and I came here. He was stunned that this was my first time in Mexico. He said, you're one lucky guy. Oh, by the way, he said, this dinner is free, but at the end of the night, we pass around a tip jar to collect money for the staff. We love this place so much. This is our way to make sure that it will stick around. I slowly realized that strange feeling I was noticing. I believed it to be a sense of community. I began to open up more about my ride and my plans. I told them I was planning to visit Coco's Corner the following day, since it's only a few hours away from here. I asked him if anyone at the party knew Coco or knew if he would be around this time of year. He just laughed. I guess you could say, we all know Coco. He's coming here tonight, he said. Who knows if he'll actually show up? But we do our best to help him out since he does so much for all the locals in the more remote areas of the community. My heart nearly leapt out of my chest at the idea of his possible arrival. Coco is a Baja icon. I mean, there's famous... And then there's Coco's Corner, Baja, California, famous. Racers have traveled from all corners of the world to come visit Coco for decades. He became a resource for those who race and travel in Baja. He's a fixer. He knows everyone. Tonight, I might get a chance to see him in person. It was that exact moment I wondered... If I had died on the road, maybe the camo guy shot me and took my bike, and this is what the afterlife is. Forever roaming the cactus-covered hills of the Baja. Not a bad idea for a book, actually. Wait, if I'm dead, then would these people also be dead? I mean, their ages are about right, and it would explain their childlike energy. Shaking my head, I tried to focus. My luck continues to get better and better. Then a plate of lobster tacos was slid in front of me. That's when I truly died. I was devouring a lobster taco when the real shrieking began. Coco's here! Coco's here! Plastic chairs began to slide out, causing quite a ruckus. The room was emptied as he slowly made his way in, laughing and talking all the way. Coco had lost one leg below the knee to diabetes, and the foot on the other from the same. He used his hands like crutches to aid himself in walking on his knees. He had thick, leather knee pads acting as shoes. I could see the calluses on his knuckles from far away as he made his way into the room. Everyone came and hugged him. Then they motioned for him to come in and sit. He made his way closer and closer, greeting all those he passed by name. Soon it became apparent he was coming to sit at the open seat at my table. Closer and closer until finally someone pulled out the chair and he climbed up, settling right next to me. The Coco and I were sharing a table at a New Year's Eve posada. In Gonzaga Bay, California. I was stunned. I introduced myself. He asked if that was my bike outside. And I told him about the ride down and that I came from Seattle. And I told him about the rough road and the military checkpoint. And then I ended up here. He stopped me. And with a thick accent, he said, never drive at night. Thieves come. They put rocks in the road. This place is safe. You come to my home tomorrow. After an official invite to Coco's place, I took a deep breath and did my best not to fanboy too hard on the guy. This was a special party, of which I was at the moment still a welcome guest. I wanted to keep it that way. We continued to eat our meals as people returned with gifts for Coco. These local expat gringos continued to shower cocoa with love. I kept my mouth shut as much as possible and just listened. I learned that he ran a community water truck, and he took it to some of the most remote areas of the peninsula, giving water to people for free. Using an old truck, he built the carrying system himself with the help of those sitting around us. As I continued to listen, I was learning more and more as to why this man who many would say is disabled, does so much more than I do with a mostly operational meat vehicle. Coco could be the most gracious individual I've ever met. He knew the name of everyone's son or daughter, as well as the grandchildren, many of them he said he was still waiting to meet. As for the gifts, what people gave him were solutions to his problems hard or impossible to find items in the Baja. Even some easy-to-find over-the-counter medicines in the USA are totally unavailable in Mexico. Coco lived on generator power only. Remember that guy talking about his off-grid setup? He made one for Coco as well. He asked him how it was working and let him know he would come by and service it at any time, no problem. This group viewed Coco as a community leader. Helping him helped those most in need. I sat and watched all of this play out right in front of me. Once I finished my food, I told Coco that I would come visit him the next day at his place. He told me to come after 10 because he would stay here at Alfonsino's and leave early to go home. I thought it only right to give up my seat to the others who so enjoyed his company. I went off to mingle in the crowd, trying my best to thank everyone. I started with the woman who gave me the golden sparkly scarf. The party went on well into the night. But I called in a night after the fireworks show. Laying in my bed, I could still hear the laughter. I slept hard that night. The next morning, I woke to a beautiful sunrise over Gonzaga Bay. Swimmers in the water were just small dark dots, in a sea of reflecting orange. The morning light rays reached out past the clouds, as if it to say, Hey, it's a new year. It can be a new you. After I walked the beach, I returned to my room and began to gather my things. Carrying my luggage to the bike, my boots were the only sound to be heard as I walked past the dining room. All was clean, quiet, and calm. The Happy New Year's sign still hung, slightly moving in the breeze, now looking a bit lonesome. With the sandy parking lot, now nearly empty, except for my bike still standing with the help of the crushed Tecate can, the sun's rays once again warmed me in the cool morning air. I made one last trip to the room, a double check to make sure I had all of my limited belongings, and then I stood in the doorway looking out over the bay. One last look before heading out. Feeling energized, I was ready to head further south. Walking back to the bike, helmet in hand, a red truck with Toyota Racing painted on the side pulled up and parked right next to me. I was pulling out my map to review plans for the day. My coffee precariously sat on my seat. A tall man with shaggy golden hair and dinner plate-sized reflective sunglasses hopped out of the truck and said, Hey, nice bike. Thanks, I said. Beautiful day to explore the hills of Baja. He walked over, taking off his sunglasses. Where are you headed? His face seemed a little more weathered from the sun than most. For now, heading to Coco's place, but then who knows? Do you know if any of these roads, as I pointed to the map, go to San Franciscoquito. Do you know if they're passable? I might try to stay there tonight. He unzipped his Toyota racing jacket, reached inside, and pulled out a Sharpie. Taking off the cap, he hovered the pen over my map. Do you mind? He said. Go for it, I said. That's why I brought it. Well, you can't miss Coco's place, so I'm glad you're heading there. He went on to X off some roads through the mountains circle a few small pueblitos mentioning the food they were known for, even mentioning local shop owners by name. He then went on to draw a new line. He said, This is the old Baja route. Not used much anymore, but still, pausing for a moment, he took a look at my bike, and then looked back at the map. Should be passable for most, you should be okay. Speed is your friend, you're gonna love it. Do you know who Ivan Stewart is? He asked, pausing for a brief moment. I was thinking hard. Can't say I do, I replied. During my reply, he signed my map in the sort of way one does when they sign a lot of stuff. Putting the cap back on, the pen, he started to walk away while saying, Look me up when you get home and tell Coco I said hi. I feel bad for missing him last night. Will do, I said, a little confused as he walked into Alfonsino's. But, I folded up my map, slid it into the map protector, started the bike before putting on my helmet and gear to give it a moment to warm up, and then I headed out. As I exited the sandy parking lot of Alfonsino's, I made my way to the main road and thought to myself, yeah, I guess I prefer riding these gravel roads during the day. Wait, wait. Does everyone around here carry a pen? What's the deal with that? Oh well. You can't miss Coco's place. He put large ropes on the road to act as speed bumps. Suspended above the road, using wire and empty Takate cans, it reads, Coco's. A long fence runs the distance of his property and separates it from the road. It has a large gate, and pulling up, I saw it was open. But I didn't see him, so I parked just inside. Feeling again like an imposter, I couldn't believe I was invited to visit his place. So many are drawn here from all corners of the world. Then I heard him. Hey, my friend, I'm over here. I spotted him waving, "'from the door of a small camper. "'It was the type of camper that fits in the bed of the truck. "'It was showing its age by the patina. "'Must have been gathered from a year's worth of Baja Sun. "'He had built a small deck off the back with chairs and a table. "'His tiny dog was running around barking as I walked up. "'She is my security system,' he said, laughing. "'Come, I'll give you the tour.' He proceeded to lead me around his property, which had to be about two or three acres. Using his arms as crutches and swinging his lower half, he would land on the leather knee pads he made for himself. Come to the cantina. You want cerveza? I followed slowly behind him as he took me through memory lane. The cantina held framed photos, floor to ceiling. It seemed like a museum. I asked him if he had photos with. Every Baja winner. Printed photographs, drawings, newspaper stories, other famous Baja personalities, all staring back at me. This looked like a record of his life. Hanging from the ceiling were ladies' underwear, some possibly large enough to be used to sail a small boat. In the back, there was a large cooler. Have a cerveza, take some with you, he said. No, thank you. I have miles to ride. Beer happens when the bike is resting, I said. Coco, there is a man at Alfonsino's who wanted to say hi. I think his name was, uh, pausing to think I was searching for the name. Ivan something? I think. Wincing because I was unsure of his name. Oh, crazy Ivan, he said. He pointed up at the wall, and there's a picture of Coco standing next to a man in full race gear holding a trophy. That guy? He questioned. Yeah, it looks like him, I said. He began to talk about Ivan's family, and how they have helped him with so many different projects here in the Baja. Talking about everyone by their first name, he continued to swing himself, leading me around his property. He showed me the camping area. He had a few other campers like the one that he came out of, and there was some space cleared for tents and a toilet with a cactus growing out of the bowl. Then it hit me. Sure, this place is his home, but to many who arrive, this is more like an art installation. We finished our tour back at his small home, sitting on his deck. He called to me and handed me a bowl of chicken puzzle. We must have talked for an hour or more. Then he brought out his guest book, a very large hardcover book that must have weighed a great deal. He flipped open to the first available section, a pen separating the pages to make it easier to find. He pointed at the spot. You write here, your name, whatever you want, here, then he leaned towards me and handed me the large and cumbersome book. It must have weighed over five pounds. I placed the heavy book on the small table we just ate at. I slowly flipped through the pages, observing many languages, colors, drawings. So many well wishes and love put on those pages over the years. I felt vastly unprepared. I can't come up with something meaningful off the cuff. I didn't know what to say. I stared blankly at the pages. Then I noticed one short sentence. Thanks for being part of my journey from here to there. Was written in blue pen. Signed. Seeing that reminded me how each of us is on our own journey, and we're all doing it all at once. If there ever was a time to speak from the heart this was that moment, not for his book, but for me. I told Coco about my younger brother's passing, how we had enjoyed riding together, going on adventures. Losing him felt in many ways like I lost one of the only people who really knew me. I reached into my pocket and showed him the Cornwall socket stamped on the back with his initials by his own hand. I asked if I could write his name in the book as well. Coco replied, Yes, of course, you must. He went on to tell me stories of loss in his own life, and how that propelled him to do more for his community. How thankful he was for everything he had, but most of all, thankful for his friends and his ability to serve. I signed the book for myself and for Ryan. I added an absurd hand drawing of a motorcycle. And when I handed the book back to Coco, we both laughed at the picture. It was so bad. He used the pen and drew a box around my latest addition to the book, making it official. He then put his hand on my shoulder. He said... You come back again soon. We will go on a water run. I will introduce you to many friends. I told him thank you. I said, And like so many before me, I gave Coco a small donation. Those who couldn't give time often gave a small amount of money. Then, as quickly as I had arrived, it was time to go. This is the traveler's dilemma feels a lot like finding gold and then having to leave it behind for others to enjoy. On the bright side, a place will normally wait for you to return, but it will never be the same as you leave it. I started my bike, put my helmet on, and waved goodbye. Next stop, San Francisco. I used the route that Ivan had drawn on my map to reach San Francisco, and I slept in a small palapa on the beach. I didn't ride into the dark that day. Instead, I sat at a small plastic table on the beach and reminded myself to think about the bigger picture. Change happens bit by bit. To us, the time can seem long and unbearable at times, but to others it can feel like a blink. I need to look out to see how I could be a service to others in my community. It's not easy to live in the now when the whole past can come in flashes all at once. From my journal that night, I wrote The sudden impact of losing a loved one is like throwing a hammer through a mirror. Everything is shattered in ways you could never imagine, nor would you like to. The pieces lay jagged and lifeless before you upon the floor. You try your best to put the mirror back together, but you realize some of the pieces are missing. The mirror you knew is not all lost, but enough is gone to produce a reflection you can't understand as you. Once you realize this, You begin the task of filling in the gaps from what was lost with something new. This task is different for everyone who found themselves treading water far away from the shallow end of loss. Some, like me, can feel sucked so far into the deep end, they feel like they may never make it back to normal. Because normal truly is lost. This trip was in search of that new and unknown reflection. I was hoping to put together a new normal. Seems like nothing in pure darkness can reflect. Sometimes you have to create and be your own light at the end of the tunnel. But that's life, a journey from here to there, going from the known out to explore the unknown in hopes of becoming, in tiny steps, something new along the way. The next few days riding sandy trails were pure enjoyment. I got the bike stuck and unstuck more than once, sand in all the places sand shouldn't be, Had to use my extra gas. Glad I brought it. Waiting to hop on MX1 until the very last moment. And then I rode hard back to San Diego. Back to stay with Eddie and his family one night before the long and last torturous ride back to Seattle. Pulling up to Eddie and Andrea's place for the second time in a little over a week, it felt like I was gone a full year. I mean, the year had changed. Eddie came out and gave me a hug. How was the ride, he asked, as he opened the garage door. I responded, it, it was great. I, I don't even know where to start. I pushed my bike into the space he made, right next to his freshly washed bike. I made beans, Eddie said, with a smile. You want some food now, or you want to clean up first? You still have dirt on his face. He was laughing at me, and then he called me a dumbass, like he does. Dreaming of a hot shower, I replied, I just need to get a shower, man, and then some beans. Coming down from a fresh shower, the kids weren't hesitant at all, since our previous visit was only a few days before. Eddie and Andrea made a big dinner, and we sat at the table and ate together. Finally, Andrea said, I want to hear about your trip. Tell us all about it. And for a brief moment, I was paralyzed with excitement, how can I begin to explain such a profound journey? One which I don't believe I yet understand myself. Should I start with how I was thinking I was being robbed in the dark at a military checkpoint, or maybe getting to party at Alfonsino's meeting Coco? I don't have the vernacular to describe such experiences. So I just asked, do you guys know who Ivan Stewart is? And they looked at me blankly, shaking their heads, confused. And then I said, we should look him up. Also, everyone seems to carry pens around with them in Baja, and it's strange, but very necessary, I guess. Then Andrea said, who is this guy? (laughs) And I just replied, I guess he's a famous Baja racer for Toyota or something. I don't know. He gave me directions. Good ones, actually.